Good to, uh, good to see all of you today. And can I just say, I was blessed by your... We understand, why do we sing uh, when we come and gather on Sunday mornings? Is it just a tradition? Is it some old-fashioned thing that we still have to do because we've decided we have to do it? And uh, I would argue, no, that's, that's not at all why we sing. We sing to bring honor and glory to the Lord. And it's amazing how our voices are an encouragement to one another. So that was true of me today. As I listened to you sing, I heard your passion and your love for the Lord coming through your voices. So thank you for ministering to me in that way. Hot buttons. Uh, we are down to two messages. Uh, I believe uh, you're not going to have to put up with me next week. I think Andreas is uh, going to take that message. It's going to be kind of a round two of technology, uh, social media, and those kinds of issues. For today, we're going to do marriage and divorce. Now, when you give a message like I gave last Sunday on sexuality, you kind of wonder, like, are they even going to let me come back? And um, does anyone get anything out of a message? Well, you know, I came in today. Two of the first people I saw were Bruce and Diane Reed, standing back there by the sound booth, arms around each other, in the church building. <laughs> I thought that wasn't allowed. Like, what do they call that at camp, right? Public displays of affection? No, no. So that was fine, I said, and, and by the way, Bruce can turn my mic off anytime he wants to. <clears throat> How long have you been married, Bruce? 43 years. Just, okay, well, you better get that right. <laughs> uh, praise the Lord for marriages that can uh, continue to be affectionate after that great number of years. And then I walk past them out into the foyer, and there's Ben and Bella, our youth leaders. They're standing, and Bella's heading to the nursery, and they had to kiss each other before she went to the nursery. I'm thinking, what is going on in this place? Uh, two of my favorite stories from last Sunday were uh, the two young women who uh, sat between their parents for last Sunday's sermon on sexuality and uh, felt somewhat uncomfortable about that. Uh, we do also want to acknowledge uh, those of you who did uh, put in a response form, and some of you were very honest about struggles uh, for the most part, um, without uh, necessarily naming yourself, but just acknowledging a struggle that you're in, and we've heard that, and uh, we trust the Lord will be at work in each of our lives as we strive to follow Christ and be more like him. So today, you can see the passage on the screen there, Malachi chapter 2, is where we're going to be uh, studying today from God's word. Last book of the Old Testament, if you've never been to Malachi before, Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. So let me read these verses for us. Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. 
says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Lord, we turn to you now and we turn to your word. And Lord, unless you speak through your word, unless you open our eyes to understand, unless you stir in our hearts, Lord, this time will be in vain. So I invite you to be present with us. Change our minds, change our hearts for your honor and glory. Amen. The book of Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament for a reason. In fact, the message of Malachi comes after uh, the, the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, which we studied earlier this year. Ezra and Nehemiah coming near the end, of course, of the history of the Old Testament when Israel had, Judah had gone into captivity and then God brings them back to the land. And there were highs and there were lows and they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt the walls, but they also struggled with unfaithfulness. In fact, those books end at the end of Nehemiah with uh, yet another example of unfaithfulness that Nehemiah had to call out among his people. And now Malachi is writing years later. And what's he writing about? Unfaithfulness. He's, he's bringing a message of rebuke and judgment on the people of Israel. And he's going to explain a number of reasons why the Lord is now withholding his blessing. That, of course, is what the Lord had promised to do. He'd promised to be the God of Israel. He'd promised to bless the offspring of Abraham and to bless the whole world through him. That was aspects of his promises that could never change. But he also warned them that if they stepped out from the protective boundaries of, uh, of, of his blessing and, and from obedience to him and from worship to him, that God would withhold his blessing as a way of calling them back. And that's exactly what's happening here. So in verse 13, we see, we see these people bringing their offerings to God, and yet they're crying and weeping because there's drought, and their crops aren't growing, and God isn't blessing them in the ways that he had said he wanted to bless them. So they come with these offerings, and earlier in the book, by the way, we find out that these offerings are actually lame animals, God had said, you bring your best, you bring, you bring your unblemished animals to worship me and to offer your sacrifices, and they weren't. Oh, that, that lamb died in the, in the pasture this morning. We'll take that one to offer to God. And here he gets very specific. And we ask the question to begin, how had Israel offended God? Well, in numerous ways, but here in these verses, there's a really specific answer, and that is this. They had abandoned their marriages. They had been unfaithful to the wives of their youth. So, uh, one of the things we have to address right away here is that this word of judgment and rebuke is falling upon the men of Israel. In those days, uh, wives and husbands were not equal partners in a marriage. A wife uh, did not have the right to divorce her husband. But in that culture, a man could divorce his wife. And so this is a judgment that is falling upon the men of Israel. They were the ones who were doing this. In our day and age, of course, men and women both have been uh, given that right and freedom to enter marriage and to leave marriage or to marry or to divorce. And so this message is applicable to all of us. How had Israel offended God? Well, here's one way, by abandoning their marriages. Now, this little passage actually gives us some tr tremendous insights into what marriage is, some things that we can learn. And not only that, but for those of you who aren't married or you think maybe I'll never be married, 
and this message doesn't apply to me, I want you to see that actually at the very heart of this message isn't, isn't you and a spouse, it's actually God. The very heart of this message, the very heart of what marriage is and what it's meant to be is God. And what we see here is something of his character and who he is. So here's the first thing we want to understand about marriage. It's there in verse 14, and that is this idea that when someone, two people get married, there is a primary witness to the marriage. See it there in verse 14? Is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Now we understand this principle of witnesses because we still have witnesses when we do marriages in our culture today. Christian marriages and even unchristian marriages, there will be witnesses. In fact, you can go to the justice of the peace but you still have to take your witness, someone who goes and stands with you uh, to uh, witness your commitment to one another for marriage, to witness your signatures, and as we see here, to sign their own signatures to the paperwork. We understand witnesses. It's still part of our marriage ceremonies today in our culture, all of these thousands of years later. And not only that, but we would call everyone who's present. When I officiate a wedding, I remind people of this, that everyone who's present is not just an attendee, you're a witness of what's happening here today. You're gonna hear vows and promises that God intends for these two people to keep. And so you're not just here for the party, you're here to be a witness. And then most importantly, is the reality that when two people stand before each other to commit their lives to each other. They are standing before a God who is listening and who is watching. This is the seriousness, how solemn a wedding ceremony is. And so we want to make sure that's well understood. That's why when a couple comes to us and says, uh, we're interested in getting married, would you marry us? Could we get married in the church? We say, okay, first thing we're gonna do is premarital counseling because we want to instill this biblical value of what marriage is and the seriousness of what is happening. It's not just a party, it's not just the next step of life. It is a promise and a vow that takes place before God who listens in and witnesses that marriage. So that's the first thing we understand about marriage from this passage. Secondly, we see this beautiful word that your spouse is your partner, also in verse 14. The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Now we use these kinds of expressions, right? Marriage partner, or we will say uh, my better half. And we understand the terminology, it makes sense that two people who are married have entered into this uh, deep, connected relationship. It's, it's the two have become one flesh. But I wonder, uh, husbands, wives, do we still see our spouse in this way? That in marriage, God has given us a partner. Let me use a different word, an ally for life. And life is tough. There are ups and downs, there are struggles and difficulties. And when you're married, you face those difficulties and challenges not, no longer alone, but with a partner and an ally. Someone who comes alongside you and says, keep going, you can do it. 
Someone who comes alongside you and encourages you and says, I, I, I see how you're following Christ. Keep going. Someone who comes alongside you in your grief and in your sorrow and says, I'm with you. It's like it says in the book of Ecclesiastes. Two are better than one. Gives a few reasons why. Good return on their labor. Two people get more work done than one person alone. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. Two lie down together, they keep each other warm. If one, one may be overpowered, but two can defend themselves. And then this expression, which often has been used at weddings, a cord of three strands, is not quickly broken. So in marriage, God has given us this rebar of society, this rebar of life where a man and a woman come together and they face the rigors of life together as allies. Is that the way you view your marriage and your spouse? This is what marriage is meant to be. Number three, and this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning, is this idea of covenant. Again, in verse 14, the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. This word covenant is actually found a number of times in the book of Malachi. It's certainly found all throughout the Bible. But it's not a word that we use very often today. And the problem is we tend to relate our ideas from our culture and experience of life onto this word covenant. So for many of us, when we hear the word covenant, we think, oh, promise. We're making a promise. Or we think contract. When I get married, I've, I've entered into a kind of contract. I've signed my name to something. I've made a promise to something. But, but those things don't fully bring the meaning of what covenant is from a biblical perspective. For example, any of us, and probably all of us, have signed contracts of some kind. And when you sign a contract, you sign it to get something out of the contract. And the person on the other side of the contract, or the business, or the company, is signing that contract to get something out of the contract. You want their services, they want your money. And if either of you don't get what you signed up for, you want your money back, or they withdraw the services. That's how a contract works. And ladies and gentlemen, isn't it obvious that in our culture and society, that is the way we've come to understand marriage? When I'm in love, when I want to spend the rest of my life with you, we'll have a ceremony, we'll dress up, we'll make vows, we'll get married. But if you stop being the person that I thought I married, or if my feelings for you and my love for you disappears, or if you don't treat me the way that I thought you should or would, then I can simply annul that contract and walk away. And we need to understand that that is not the biblical understanding of covenant. That's not the biblical teaching of marriage. And most of all, and this is what I want us to catch today, that is a violation of the character of God. To understand covenant in that way is to misunderstand who God is and what he's like. So what is a covenant? A few things that we need to understand about covenant. First of all, a covenant, a biblical covenant, always involves relationship. Not merely a business relationship, or better said, a business transaction where we sign up, 
you get what you want, I get what I want. In the Bible, a covenant involves a relationship between two parties. The idea is uh, we, just, we don't want to just be in a business transaction. We want to be linked. We want to be in a bond, in a relationship bond. And actually, the first time we see this is in creation when God made the Garden of Eden and he placed human beings in it. The idea was that he would, uh, that, that human beings would flourish under God's covenant love, under his blessing, under his rule. So God extends to these human beings his protection and his provision and his presence. It was a relationship. Of course, Adam and Eve demonstrated what's been true all along, that even in covenant, a person, a human being, can choose to wiggle away and to step outside of that protective place of, of blessing and relationship. And that's what humanity did. And yet, God, by his tremendous character of grace and mercy, has spent the rest of history pursuing us with what? With covenant love making covenants with Noah and then with Abraham and with Moses and with David and ultimately through Jesus, making covenant that makes it possible for him to be reunited in relationship with sinful human beings like us. This is the nature of God. So a covenant is not just a business transaction where you get what you want, I get what I want. Covenant is a commitment to a permanent relationship. It's the first thing we need to understand. Secondly, covenant is about the well-being of the other party. This is why we have to understand covenant is so different than a contract. The only reason I would ever sign a contract is because of what I will get out of it. And I will sign that to make sure you understand your responsibility to do what you said you do for me. Covenant is never about me. It is always about the other. It is a promise made, a, a commitment to a relationship in which I am saying, I am for you. And I want to bless you. And I want to surround you with my protective blessing. I want you to experience my presence. I want to give to you. So here's one of the beautiful ways we see that illustrated in a simple, somewhat well-known story in the Bible, two best friends, Jonathan and David. And what do we read? Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. What did Jonathan do? He took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. You see the difference between a contract and a covenant? When I enter a contract, everything points back to me. What am I going to get out of this? When I enter a covenant, everything points to you. How can I bless you? And this is our God. God is a God of covenant making. God desires to be in covenant with human beings like us, though we don't deserve it. And God's heart is to surround us with his protective blessing. And what is sin? Sin is saying, I don't want to be in this contract or this covenant. I don't want... I don't want to be in a relationship with God and rebelling and moving and running from God. And redemption is all about God calling us back. And that's why this third point is so important. Covenant is a God thing. 
I'm sure there are people sitting here today and you've heard me try and explain this and I feel like I can't do it very well and you're sitting there, I don't really get this. What's the, what's the difference between a contract and a covenant? I don't really understand. Yeah, and here's one of the reasons why. Because covenant is God. It doesn't compute with us in our selfish humanness. Covenant does not compute. We're always wondering what we get out of it. It's always, in our sinfulness, it's always about us. And what we need to understand is when it comes to covenant, God says, we give. So a covenant-making God, even though it's all for him, it's all for his glory, what God is doing is, let me bless you. Let me surround you with... So think about how God does this. When did he make a covenant with Noah? After he'd flooded and destroyed the whole earth because of our sin and rebellion against him. What would it be like for Noah to get up the next day after the flood's done and and it's only his family left and God's killed everybody? We know God was just to do that, but I'm just asking, what was that like for Noah? And how could he get up the next morning and trust that God's not going to send another flood and take him out? Do you know how? By a covenant. God reaching out to Noah. God taking initiative, making a covenant, saying, I will never destroy the earth with a flood again. And here, I'm going to give you this rainbow as a promise. What was God doing there? He was surrounding Noah with his protective blessing and covenant. He was saying, Noah, you you are safe with me. And then God comes along with a guy named Abram, tells him to leave his homeland and leave his false gods and go to a land that I will show you. He makes a covenant with him. He says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make a nation out of you and I'm going to, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you. What was God doing? He was taking hold of Abram and saying, I, I, I want to surround you with my protective blessing. And for hundreds of years, God watched over Abram and Abram's offspring, Abraham's offspring, until they became a great nation. And when they were trapped in slavery in Egypt, God, faithful to his covenant, brought them out. This is what God does. This is God's heart. Do you understand now why when we treat marriage and the marriage covenant as cheap and something that can easily be tossed aside, do you see why God, why that hurts? Why that is such a violation, not just of the Bible, but more importantly, of the very character of God. So to understand marriage, we have to understand this. It is a covenant relationship. And finally, the fourth thing we need to understand about marriage from this passage is the impact that it has on our children. Verse 15, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. Did you ever notice that verse before? God's disappointed. He's judging. He's rebuking his people because they've tossed aside their marriages. And then he, through Malachi, he gives an explanation. Here's one of the reasons that I want you to be faithful to your marriages. Here's one of the reasons that I make a man and a woman one permanently is so that within the confines of their marriage and their home and their family, the children can be raised up to follow God. All right, so we got to stop for a moment and say, is that the only way someone can be raised up to follow God? Like if I'm a single parent are my kids going to go wayward? No, of course not. God in his grace has ways of taking children from the worst situations and raising them up to follow Jesus. And sometimes 
A child who's raised in a godly home and seen godly examples in their mom and dad do not go on to follow Jesus. But generally speaking, what is God saying? The best place for a child to see the goodness of God, the best place for a child to be raised to follow after this good God is within the safety of a covenant marriage where the very character of God is being acted out every day by a mom and a dad who love each other. When I do pre-marriage counseling or when I talk to young parents, my uh, really simple, unprofound advice is this. The best way you can love your kids is to love your spouse. Give them the security of a covenant relationship. Give them the security of growing up in a home where they're not only uh, secure within the confines of your covenant love, but all the while they are learning about God, God's faithfulness, God's covenant faithfulness. Understand this about marriage. This is one of the ways we teach our kids to be faithful. Well, our passage has a couple of things we need to learn about divorce, or in other words, the breaking of the marriage covenant. So let's see a couple of things here. First again in verse 14. You ask why. Why is the Lord no longer accepting our offerings? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Listen now. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner. I use the NIV. I like the NIV. I think it's a great version to preach from. But sometimes it just like any version, it doesn't necessarily capture the, uh, the best rendering of translation. The Hebrew word that's used for unfaithful here is better understood as treachery. So reread that with me again. The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been treacherous to her. Or say it a different way. You have betrayed her. That is the meaning of this word. So we say this, and understand this about divorce. To abandon a spouse is betrayal. That's what it is. Some of you know the sting of this, the pain of this. It's one thing to lose a spouse who has died. Terribly painful experience. But how about to lose a spouse and to lose a marriage to a spouse that has not died, still very much alive, and in many cases choosing to live life simply with someone else. God says, this is treachery. This is betrayal. It's kind of like when, uh, imagine we're going to do a kid's play at church on Sunday, and we're going we're gonna to act out the story of the 12 disciples I don't think anyone ever puts up their hand and says, can I please be Judas? But we need to understand that in the eyes of God, when we enter into the marriage covenant and then abandon it, that is who we are. It is a betrayal against God. It is a betrayal certainly against our spouse. It's treachery in the eyes of God. Here's the second thing 
And again, notice the language that's used here. Verse 16, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. Let me just point out that uh, these two or three verses uh, are some of the hardest verses from what I understand, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but from what I've read, some of the hardest verses to translate from Hebrew into English. So that is why for some of you in verse 16, you'll find the uh, somewhat famous phrase, God hates divorce. That's one of the ways it's translated in, especially in some of the older English translations. Here in the NIV, the man who hates and divorces his wife does violence to the one he should protect. Let me just, a little rabbit trail, just simply say that when there are places like this in scripture where there's um, uncertainty about how something should be translated and, or maybe that some of the manuscripts are slightly different by the providence of God, those issues never change the meaning of the Bible. And this is one of those cases. So as we read through this passage and we ask ourselves, does God hate divorce? We can say yes, regardless of how we translate verse 16. Or we can read through this passage and ask, if, if a guy abandons, and, uh, abandons his wife and his marriage covenant, is that a hatred of her? In a sense, absolutely it is. Because in the Bible, hatred is always rejection. So notice the word. To abandon a spouse is violence. The man who hates and divorces his wife does violence to the one he should protect. Now, I know there's people in this room who have experienced this or maybe you're in the middle of it right now. You should probably have someone who's experienced that just come up and just share briefly about what that's been like for you. It, this word is not overkill at all, is it? And for those of us who've had parents who split up when we were children, I always find it interesting when someone shares a testimony of faith in Christ, they will always tell you if they come from a broken home. They, they just always will because it becomes such a huge part of their life for good or for bad it does violence to the spouse it does violence to the one who's abandoning it does violence to the children it does violence to the extended families it does violence to our culture at large and to society this is God's word this is his view of divorce it is a treachery and it is a violence now there's people in this room who've been abandoned by a spouse or who you've been divorced by a spouse and you can, I'm sure, say amen to these things. Maybe there's someone in this room who's been the one who did the divorcing, who did the abandoning. And the grace of God is such that there's hope for you too, isn't there? The covenant-keeping God extends his covenant salvation and forgiveness to every one of us in spite of what we've done in the past. I want to finish by just getting a little bit practical because I know for some of you this just raises questions. Okay, so what happens? What if my spouse does this? Or what if my spouse has done this? Uh, the elders a number of years ago put together a document on marriage and divorce long before I was here. And as I read through it, I thought I, I couldn't say it any better. So certainly uh, very much in alignment with my own views. So let me just give you some of the basics here of how we understand marriage, divorce, and remarriage at Wallenstein Bible Chapel. Here's the first obvious thing, 
If you are married or you aspire to be married, understand that marriage is till death separates us. So we're going to say this when we do pre-marriage counseling. You understand that you're committing yourself to a covenant, a self-giving covenant that God intends to be permanent. We're not buying into the culture's ideas of marriage comes and goes, just as my feelings do, but we are committing ourselves to a lifelong covenant. That's the first thing we want to uphold at Wallenstein Bible Chapel. Secondly, what about separation? We will say separation is sometimes necessary for a spouse, sometimes the children, who are in an intolerable or harmful situation. The goal, though, is always repentance and reconciliation. So we're not, we're not going to uh, come to a wife who's in a, an abusive situation, a harmful situation, or uh, a couple who's just in an absolute war zone in their marriage with little kids who are suffering and struggling. We're not going to say, you cannot separate uh, we, would, we believe 1 Corinthians 7 suggests that there is a time for separation, but that separation always has this goal of reconciliation. Number three, even in extreme marital breakdown, including adultery, our first desire is always repentance, forgiveness, and the reconciliation of the marriage. So someone's in a situation where their spouse has abandoned them or their spouse has gone off and had an affair. Our first counsel to that uh, abandoned spouse is not, oh great, well you should just get a divorce and find a new spouse. No, we actually want to uphold the biblical teaching of forgiveness and redemption. In fact, the Bible has a book written by a guy named Hosea, an Old Testament prophet, who literally had a spouse who he married and she would go back again and again into prostitution and God would say bring her back bring her home and the whole point of that was for God to teach his people this is my heart this is what I am like I will forgive you I will redeem you I will restore you in spite of yourself so this is our first hope our first prayer our first counsel sometimes a spouse falls into adultery and uh, when confronted, they acknowledge their sin, they're, uh, they're ashamed of what they've done, and they immediately seek repentance and restoration. Is there going to be a lot of work, a lot of damage that's going to need to be repaired, a lot of trust that's going to need to be rebuilt? Yes. How can we even do that? How could we even possibly accomplish that by the grace of God and only by the grace of God? But that would be our first hope and our first desire. Then finally this. Divorce and remarriage are permitted based on Matthew chapter 19, that passage we've seen in our hot button study where Jesus is asked, can you divorce your wife and remarry for any reason? And Jesus takes them back to Genesis and reminds them about what marriage is. But then he gives that exception, except in cases of sexual immorality, the word porneia. To divorce and remarry is to commit adultery except in cases of porneia. So here's how we understand that. Divorce and remarriage are permitted, not commanded, in cases of persistent sexual unfaithfulness. That is our understanding as elders at Wallenstein Bible Chapel. Notice it's not commanded. If someone is in a situation where they've been abandoned, their spouse has gone off, maybe having an affair, maybe gone off and living with someone, maybe gone off and gotten married to someone else, And that person feels it's their conviction 
to remain single as a testimony of God's covenant faithfulness. I've known some people, my own grandfather and my best friend actually are in that situation and that's been their conviction. I married once, I married for life, I'm not gonna remarry. And for me, if someone has that conviction, I'm not gonna say, oh no, you should just run off and get married. It's not commanded. It's not, we don't insist upon that. But it is permitted in cases where there's persistent sexual unfaithfulness. If anyone has questions about this, any of the elders would be happy to chat with you and try to answer your questions. But I want to finish with this question of, whoa, if this is God's high view and high standard of marriage, how do we possibly live this out? How do we possibly uphold this standard of marriage? And I I mentioned already that Malachi mentions covenant several times. And look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. God speaking here, he says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, speaking of John the Baptist, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Remember, this is the last book of the Old Testament who's Malachi writing about. He's writing about Jesus. When it comes to covenant, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to us trying to do covenant the way that God does, surely we're all sitting here today thinking, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I have it in me to maintain faithfulness in the face of someone else's unfaithfulness. I don't know that I can do what Scripture's calling me to do here as a married man or woman. And so we turn to verse 3 in closing to find hope because the reality is that you can't. Do you realize that's what the Old Testament was for? The Old Testament shows us that humanity is incapable of maintaining a covenant relationship with God. God is capable. God is always faithful. And even in the face of our unfaithfulness, he keeps reaching out, he keeps loving us, but we are completely incapable So in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, it talks about a new covenant where God says, I'm going to put a new covenant. I'm going to change your hearts. I'm going to take your heart of stone. I'm going to turn it into a heart of flesh. And then, then we'll be in a covenant. Then you will keep my covenant. He's talking about the time when Jesus Christ would come and bring a revolution to this world, a revolution that begins on the inside, a revolution that begins in our hearts, Jesus, who became the perfect fulfillment of all of those Old Testament covenants that Israel was unable to uphold, Jesus came and fulfilled them all. Jesus, who was both the covenant giver, he was Yahweh, he was the one who spoke to Noah and to Abraham and to David. But then Jesus comes and he's human and he's the fulfillment of all of those things that Israel was to do. So when it comes to us, learning to be covenant-keeping people. We look to Jesus. Two reasons why. Because when we look at Jesus and we see his unbending, unwavering grace and mercy towards sinners, we find hope. We find an example of how we can love an imperfect spouse. And I really hope my wife does that too because she lives with an imperfect spouse 
but not just the example of Christ as the covenant keeper. What we need is a change of heart. What we need is salvation. What we need is a new birth. And that's why the New Testament teaches us about this reality of the new birth that comes through faith in Christ where he changes our hearts. And no, as I walk through this life, I'm still gonna struggle. I just had to acknowledge to my wife this morning how convicted I was about this idea of covenant-keeping love within marriage and how contractual I have acted in so many ways. But God is transforming us. I'm not what I will be, but I'm not what I used to be. And I can learn by God's grace, by the example of Jesus, more importantly, by his covenant love living through me, I can learn to keep covenant the way that my God keeps covenant. Do you see what it's all about? Do you see why it matters that when we enter a marriage covenant that we uphold that covenant? You know why? Because there's a watching world that gets to see in us the image of God, gets to see in us a living representation of the gospel of Jesus as we live out covenant love in our marriages. May it be so. May it be so at Wallenstein Bible Chapel. May it be so for the glory of God. Let's sing, and then uh, Glenn is going to come and close in prayer. So, yeah, I trust that your hearts have been touched this morning. Thank you, Gary, for really bringing out that covenant relationship. I'd like to just read a couple of verses from Philippians 2. Uh, my title in my Bible says, Imitating Christ's Humility. And uh, as we do life together as married couples, I think this principle is really important. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. When Gary mentioned how God's covenant is an unchanging covenant relationship with us, that is so strong. Um, I've been involved in our home. We've done a number of um, marriage encouragement things uh, called Love and Respect uh, Building Blocks by Emerson Eggridge. And uh, in some of his presentations, he speaks of Jesus being on our shoulder, as it were, looking over our shoulder and watching how we do our married life. And that, that really, <laughs> just really was so visual to me. Uh, sometimes we forget that the Lord is right amongst us in our marriage. We're not alone. He states something in there as well. My response is my responsibility. So as we do life in marriage, it's so important to keep in mind that it's my responsibility to respond properly before God and represent Christ in my life. So I just want to encourage you, if you've been struggling in your marriage or you have concerns or questions, definitely feel free to Come and ask, and we'd love to talk to you and encourage you in that. Don't do it alone. So let's pray. Father, 
Again, we come to you with just thankfulness that the Word of God is so rich in teaching us about yourself. And when we go back to the beginning, your faithfulness throughout all generations has been just so amazing. And then the new covenant that we can have a relationship with your son that is so strong and so powerful that no one can snatch it from us. And John, it speaks. So I pray that we in our marriages would represent a deep, heartfelt, honest love for our spouses, a sacrificial love like Christ has for us. And so that we can be uh, a testament of your character. What a high calling that is. So I just pray for each marriage represented in this place, in this uh, church, and for those who are making those vows shortly in marriage, that these things would speak into our lives powerfully so that your name would be glorified and that when we come to worship, our worship will be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Enjoy your beautiful Father's Day day. Beautiful, beautiful weather. Thank you.